All right, we are finishing up today a shorter teaching series. I say shorter for us uh, in terms of general pattern uh, that interrupted our longer study through the book of Acts. And before we get into today's study, I just wanted to ask you if you would join me over the next few days in praying for uh, what I'm going to teach next Sunday. And the reason I'm asking is I would ordinarily just return to the Acts study. Uh, we would be, we've covered the first three chapters of Acts and I would be starting next chapter four. But I had a very distinct um, sense this week that um, maybe, maybe the, the Lord's purpose in starting the Acts study uh, has already been fulfilled and that I should be teaching something else. But that might have just been one of those passing thoughts. I've had those too. Um, I'm not necessarily presuming that, you know, I heard a direction from the Lord. So I just would like you to, if you would, join me in praying. Should we go back to the Acts study and keep powering through starting from chapter four? Or should I pursue the, the thought that was in my heart in terms of uh, a different uh, teaching focus for now? And doesn't mean we could never ever come back to the book of Acts. Uh, just in terms of timing, uh, that may be something that uh, the Lord has a different plan for. So I'd appreciate it if you pray for me in that regard. Uh, and you'll find out next Sunday what I, you know, come up with. Yes. Uh, so we've, we've been doing this uh, study. This will be number 12 in this series and the, and the final one. And the, the reason, this is a study through the, the seek the series or sequence of letters in Revelation chapter two and three to these seven churches that were in near vicinity to John as he wrote the book of Revelation. Remember, he was in a Roman prison on a Roman prison island called Patmos, which is just off the coast of modern day Turkey. And from there, the Lord appeared to him in a vision which then led to a series of visions that the Lord gave him. But this first vision in chapter one is a vision of the Lord himself. And in the vision, he sees the Lord standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And for anyone that has any understanding or remembrance of how the Lord made himself known in the Old Testament, it should have been an obvious connection point. And for us in our generation, and I'm not saying us in this church, I think we're fairly well versed in Old Testament things, but for many uh, modern day Christians, there's not a lot of familiarity with the Old Testament. And so it might not be an, an automatic connection point, but it's drawn from the imagery of the actual temple, the tabernacle in the temple, both of which were one, a temporary structure, a tent-like structure for their wilderness journey, the other, a permanent stone structure erected in the city of Jerusalem, but both places being appointed by the Lord as what he called my house. And it was the house of the Lord in the midst of where his people lived. So in the wilderness journey, it needed to be a tent because they were moving from place to place. So the house of the Lord needed to move from place to place. And in each circumstances, they found a new camping spot, the Lord leading them to that spot in the wilderness journey. Uh, the, the tent of the Lord, the house of the Lord would be erected first and then all of their tents would be erected surrounding it. Portraying, the Lord intentionally portraying that 
he is to be at the heart and the center of the life of his people. And then, of course, in the, in the construction of the temple in the days of Solomon, as the people had settled in the land of Israel, with Jerusalem being the focal point of their settlement, of their, of their new holy nation as the Lord defined it, uh, the Lord caused the temple to be built there in the city of Jerusalem. And in that sense, all of the lives of his people surrounding the centrality of his house. So all of that is now carried forward in Revelation chapter one into a new covenant perspective about that same kind of relationship between the Lord and his people and specifically between the Lord now and his individual churches that had been established, had been planted in each one of the cities in this region that John was writing to. So let's reread here in Revelation chapter one. And what I'm doing today is I'm just going to do kind of a summary and a review of what we've covered over the last nine, or excuse me, 11 weeks in our studies. And um, I just wanna highlight the main points so that when we head over to the Spajari home a little later, we'll have a, a fresh perspective for our discussion and for our consideration. So I'm reading from Revelation chapter one and this first vision here in verse 12 that the Lord gave to John and it's a vision of the Lord himself. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This was a, a heavenly voice that had spoken to him. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Remember in the, the tabernacle, there was a single lampstand, the only light source in the house of God. And then later in the temple, there were numerous lampstands because it was a larger structure. But again, they're the only light source in the temple. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And this is where John's focus shifts to seeing the Lord Jesus revealed in his heavenly, resurrected and ascended glory. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son, son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And we're, we're not going to revisit all the details of the vision, but each one of these details describing what John saw as he looked at the Lord Jesus is spiritually significant and connected to specific Old Testament passages. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And then in verse 20, the Lord graciously offers to John a brief explanation and connection to John's understanding for ultimately our benefit today of what this vision ultimately means. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, when he says the seven churches, he's talking about seven specific churches that were on the mainland of modern day Turkey, what was called in those days Asia Minor. And he named those churches specifically and instructed John to send letters to those churches, really to send the entire, what we now call the book of Revelation to the seven churches. But the next two chapters then include very specific, short, personal letters, personal from the Lord's heart to those churches. Now, those seven letters, we've studied through them um, from chapter two and chapter three. We've seen that the letters are similar in pattern they follow uh, the identical pattern in each case in which the Lord introduces himself to the church. He reintroduces himself in a sense by highlighting specific aspects of who he is in relationship to them. And then he evaluates the church. He evaluates the church not from their perspective, not from their understanding, but from his own. And of course, his perspective, and this is, our, this is our faith conclusion, that the Lord knows better than the people that he's writing to what their true spiritual condition is. So we can conclude and we can presume, and it's a, it's a good conclusion, a good deduction, good presumption in this case that these seven churches probably felt pretty good about themselves before they received these letters. And in a couple of cases, there were strong reasons why these churches should feel good about themselves because the Lord felt really good about them. But in several cases, churches that most likely felt good about themselves in their own self-evaluation uh, had no real and valid reason to feel that way because the Lord did not feel good about each one of these seven churches. And so he, he introduces himself to the church, he evaluates the church, and then in each case he exhorts the church in order to move them from where they are to where they need to be, or if they are in a good and healthy place, to keep them in that good and healthy place. And then finally he ends each letter with promises. Promises for not just I'm gonna make things a little bit better in your present life here in this world, but promises that hold eternal value and significance because they're pointing the hearts and the perspective of the members of these churches to eternity. And the point of those promises is, this is where your real value in life should lie. Not in what's going on in your life today, what went on in your life yesterday or what you think might go on, on in your life tomorrow, but what your life will be defined by for all of eternity. And when you think about it from that perspective, you understand why the Bible uses descriptions like in the book of James, your life in this world is like a, it's like a morning mist. You know, the, the, the moment you wake up, and I, I love a morning mist. When it, I don't know if you all feel the same way, but I love 
you know, walking out my front door and it's, there's, it's kind of cool and there's, there's these thick droplets in the air and it's just kind of quiet in the world when the mist is on the, on the ground. And then the sun rises, as James describes, and what happens when the, when the sun reaches its full strength. If we're dealing with a morning mist, it, like a vapor, it just evaporates and it goes away. And you wonder, what happened to that mist? His point in that description is, your life in this world is just, you're just here for a moment if you're comparing it to the length of eternity. Now, I've already lived a long life in this world. I'm, I'm not quite to what the current statistics for our country say is the, the expected average life of a man, but I'm not far away. The expected average life for a man in this world is now somewhere in the range of 75 years old. Can you imagine 75? That's, that's how many years you're granted according to statistics. I'm 68, so theoretically I've got seven more years to live. Now, I, I hope I live longer than that, but that's in the Lord's hands and it's not in my control in that regard. But I will just say, my life in one sense seems like I've, it's been so long. And it's, I mean, there's just, there's just been so much that I've experienced in the course of the 68 years in this world. But in another sense, I wake up some days and it just feels like I've just been here for a moment. And then there will come a moment for my life where I will breathe my last breath in this world and my heart will beat one last time and I'll be gone and I will be with the Lord and it will be for eternity. And how long is that? And now from that perspective, which matters most ultimately? I'm not diminishing the importance and significance of your life in this world, but your life in this world is not what it's all about. It really isn't. And so Jesus is, by giving them these promises at the end of each one of these letters that are eternally oriented, he's, he is shifting their perspective from the temporary to the eternal. And then, of course, in each one of the letters, he ends with this important line, he who has ears to hear, and he's referring now to, do you have spiritual ears to hear what the Lord is really speaking? Not everyone does. Not everyone even that attends church. I will say it this way, I don't know your hearts, but most likely not even everyone that's here today will hear what the Spirit is saying through this message today, or that he spoke to these seven churches on that day. But he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so our conclusion, and I think this is the way we're meant to read these letters, and it's the way I've been trying to emphasize them, is that while each one of these churches lived in their moment of history, in their cultural setting, and we're in a completely different moment of history, and in a completely different cultural setting than they were, nevertheless, the things that the Lord was speaking to them are as critically significant for our church life and our individual life today as they were for them then. These are messages for all the churches, not just those specific seven. So with that, what we see is that the high priest is Jesus in the role of the high priest. He is standing in the midst of the lampstands and then look in chapter two, verse one. He adds this detail to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So he is standing in the midst of the seven, but he's also walking among them. And what I took away from that line is that the Lord is periodically visiting the churches. In one sense, if it's a true church, then the Lord is always present with the church because the Lord lives in the members of the church. Therefore, he's always with us. But in another sense, the Lord does periodically visit the churches in order to make his evaluation of their church life known to them for their benefit. Because the whole point of church life is change. The whole point of church life is we're called together as the saved ones, but now we're the growing ones. We are all called and meant to grow in the likeness of Christ. And while that is the Lord's absolute intention for every single believer, not every single believer is always growing. You can stop growing even in Christ. You can stunt your own growth even in Christ. And so his point is he is, he is periodically visiting the churches to move them forward. And even the healthy ones, in the couple of examples of really strong and healthy churches, spiritually speaking, he speaks words that will cause them to keep growing in the right and healthy direction that they're already moving. All right, so I want to just go back over the seven letters briefly and remind you of the main points of each one. But before we do, and I had mentioned this in the very first introductory study um, some 12 studies ago now, but I want to revisit this. The, one of the things that really stood out to me as I, you know, because I've read these seven letters, I can't tell you how many countless times I've read these seven letters. But of course, because of this teaching series, I've, I've revisited them, I've reread them, I've restudied them, I've been meditating on them, I've been thinking a lot about them. And um, certain things stood out to me. Some of the things stood out to me because of their presence in the letters, which is just interesting to me that the Lord chose to mention certain things that he did. But what also stood out to me is what's not in these letters. And I just wanted to give you a list of things that the Lord never addresses with any of these seven churches. He never speaks once about the, the physical size of the church in terms of the numbers of people that are attending these seven churches. He never speaks once about the various programs that the church has as part of the life of the church. Not that there's anything wrong with churches having programs and ministries. Churches are meant to be active and engaged in serving the Lord, and that will take the form of various meetings and ministries and programs, but the Lord never mentions those. And I'll, I'll explain why I find that significant in a moment. He never mentions anything about the church facilities, where the churches meet. Now, we know that most of the first century churches didn't have the blessing and benefit that we have this morning of meeting in a dedicated facility just for church use. Most of the first century Christian churches met where? People's homes. Like we're going to go over to this Vidari home uh, this afternoon after the, uh, after the service and have our our fellowship time, our discussion time, our prayer time. Um, that, was, that was church for the people in the first century. So he never, he never says, hey, you know, you guys have been meeting in homes long enough. It's time to 
you know, have a building fund, uh, you know, do a, do a, do a thermometer and let's get some money flowing in and let's build a nice facility. It's about time, you're way overdue. No mention of anything like that. Nor is there any mention about other church financial concerns. There's no mention about church technology. Of course, they, they had very limited technology, but still there's no concern about you know, making things even nicer because of the better use of technology. Uh, there's, and I just added this one because of our current consideration as a church. No mention of starting end times. You know, like, uh, you know what? You guys should do it like the Philadelphia church does. You're over here in Laodicea and you're starting at the wrong time. And that's why things are all messed up in Laodicea. There's no mention about different worship styles. You know, um, we all have our preferences. I would just say, like even in the songs we sang this morning, they're all worship, so my heart was engaged. But even in the songs we sang this morning, some of them I liked better than others. Okay. D does, that, does that mean I, I, on the one song, I'm really worshiping really good, and then on the other song, because it's not my style, and I do have musical style preferences, does that mean that I can't worship as well in that song? Well, it really is a gauge of where my heart's at, right? And so, how do you think the worship went in the first century, seven churches that the Lord is writing to here? I think his concern is, are you worshiping me? Not, you know, gosh, don't sing that song. Or how come you haven't sung this other song? I think the, the concern is the actual content of their worship. So what is, his, what is the conclusion I'm drawing from that? The priority concerns of the Lord as he looks down from the throne of God upon his church and as he periodically visits the churches that truly belong to him, I think his priority concerns lay elsewhere other than the things that I just mentioned and listed. So what are his priority concerns? Well, let's, let's, let's review now. What we're gonna do is, I'm just gonna briefly, because we've studied this in detail, I'm not gonna reteach all of this, but I'm going to just remind you from each one of the seven letters, there were things that pleased the Lord in most of these letters, as he considered those, the seven churches, and there were things that displeased the Lord. Now there's a couple of exceptions where there was literally nothing that pleased the Lord as he looked at the church, and what a sad comment that would be if that's how the Lord evaluated us. And then there were a couple of cases where there was nothing displeasing to the Lord as he looked at the church. And that's certainly something I would, you know, as a shepherd strive to be more like. Um, I would certainly love it for the Lord to look at this church and say, you know what? There's nothing displeasing to me that I see among you. So let's... Let's look at these together. And I'm not gonna reread the text. I, we've gone through each one of these. I'm gonna leave out also, by the way, as I go back through the review here, I'm gonna leave out the, the, the socially and culturally significant details from the cities in which they lived. Remember, in each letter, the Lord made specific powerful points to them based upon something that was familiar in the city around them, which just tells me how connected churches are to the cities where the Lord plants them. And so we're not gonna go back through all of that detail, but those are in those studies and they're certainly available on Sermon Audio if you didn't have a chance to listen to them or you want to listen again. All right, so Ephesus. 
I, I identified, and this is, I've kind of named each one of these seven churches by a brief description based upon how the Lord wrote to them. Ephesus was a mixed church. It was a very, in a healthy way, a very discerning church. And yet it was ultimately a loveless church. Love, a lack of love in the most important area of church life. So what was it that pleased the Lord about the church in Ephesus? He was pleased by their works. They were a very active church and he liked what he saw in their activity. Their toil, which means that their ministry service to the Lord took a toll on them. They were toiling. To toil is different than just to work. Toil is hard work. So these people were fully committed to the ministry service that the Lord had appointed for them. He was pleased by their patient endurance and bearing up under the struggles of representing the Lord in a city that did not acknowledge and recognize the Lord. And he was pleased that they were not weary in their service to the Lord. I've seen people, and I've been a pastor now for 35 years, as I mentioned recently, just like the church has passed a 35th anniversary recently. I've seen people that at one point seemed to be wholeheartedly serving the Lord in the ministries that they felt that the Lord had gifted them and called them to serve him in, only to be worn down by years of service in that ministry and walk away from it entirely. And the Lord looked at the Ephesians with all of their toil and hard work in serving him, and he was pleased that they were not growing weary in their service. I want to be like that. I don't want to be, you know, uh, in, the, in any time in my personal future as I serve the Lord. You know, a big part of my job is studying the Word of God and then presenting it to you. I don't ever want to get tired of studying the Word of God. And, and the other big part of my service to the Lord is shepherding you. And so I don't ever want to be, oh man, I am just tired of working with these people. I'm tired of counseling them. I'm tired of helping them. You know, Lord, you just find someone else to do it because I'm worn out. I've known, I've, even apart from this church, I've known pastors that just got worn out from shepherding. And I don't want to be like that. I don't want you to be worn out in your own service to the Lord. Uh, he was very pleased by their discernment. So in this case, it had to do with, there were those in their midst that made false claims to be something that they weren't claiming to be apostles of the Lord and they weren't actually appointed by the Lord as his messengers. And so they tested the claims of those and found them to be false. And the Lord was pleased that they weren't so naive as to just believe anything, any great claim that someone walking in the door was making about themselves. And then the last thing that pleased the Lord, he also was very pleased that they hated the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, we encounter the, the Nicolaitan faction uh, more than once in these seven letters. Essentially, it was a teaching which taught cultural compromise, that the church, in order to, to get along with the society that surrounded them, needed to make some concessions to that society and not be so stringent, not be so strict in holding to the righteous and holy standards of the Lord. In, in other words, it's more of a political approach 
to, to connecting with and interacting with the society around us. In politics, you know how it is, in order for anything to get done, because there's always, like in our country, there's always these two sides. There's the conservatives and the liberals. There's the Republicans and the Democrats. And, the, and they can never agree on anything. And so in order to get anything done, they have to compromise with each other. And they have to give concessions to each other. That's political. That's the nature of politics. Church interaction with the society around us is never to be political in that sense. It doesn't mean that you can't be involved in politics, but it does mean that if you're a true church, you're not making concessions to a sinful and corrupt and twisted society and culture that's only getting worse surrounding us. So he's very pleased by that. What displeased the Lord about the Ephesians was only one thing. And that was they had left their first love. Now, their first love wasn't some teenage romance. What was their first love? Their love for the Lord himself. The love that the Lord first put in their heart for him as they were first saved, as they were first born again, as they were first made new creatures in Christ. And now they've gone on from there and they're actively serving the Lord and they're grinding out ministry. And somewhere along the line, they lost their original heart for the Lord. It's possible for a believer to be so caught up in doing Christian stuff that they forget what it's really ultimately first and foremost always about, which is your heart connection to him. So the Lord in each case exhorts each one of the seven churches in their circumstance. His exhortations for the Ephesian church was, remember how you started? Remember from where you've fallen. Remember what it was like at the beginning. And then repent and do the first works. I made this emphasis when we were studying through Ephesians, but I'll, uh, the Ephesian letter here in the, in the seven churches. But I'll remind you, doing the first works simply means, and it's just interesting to me, he doesn't say, love me like you did at the beginning. The Lord is not desperate for our love. He wants our love, but he's not desperate. He's not, he's not like begging, love me like you did at the beginning. What does he say to them? Do the works you did at first. Meaning there are certain things they did at the beginning of their walk with the Lord that only enhanced and encouraged that love to grow deeper and stronger. And they had lost that. And I attached it to my own remembrance of my first days in the Lord, which was a heart to study the word of God. No one had to tell me. No one had to you know, look over my shoulder. No one had to discipline me to, you know, you gotta read so many words or so many chapters or so many pages. And I just, I loved to read the word of God at the beginning of my walk with the Lord. I loved to pray. No, it wasn't like, oh, I gotta pray. I gotta remember to pray. It was like, I, no one could stop me from praying. I loved to share the message with others that didn't know the Lord of what the Lord had done to change and transform my life. There were things I did at the beginning. I loved to come to church and worship. I loved the, the fellowship of the body. Those things only enhanced my love for the Lord. Now, from there, let's review the Smyrnan letter, the second letter. This was a church in a different circumstance entirely than Ephesus. I, I described Smyrna as a persecuted church. And what pleased the Lord about the Smyrnans? It's just 
this small congregation that was faithfully holding on to the Lord, their allegiance to the gospel and to the name of Jesus, under intense external pressure being brought against them by persecution. And what pleased him was they were spiritually rich. The implication is they might not have had much financially at their disposal, but spiritually they were overflowing with the riches of heaven because of their faithful uh, allegiance to the Lord. What displeased him about the Smyrna church was absolutely nothing. There's not a single word of criticism in that letter toward this church. And his exhortation to them, because they're already in a healthy place, and they're just holding on to their, to their faithfulness to the gospel and to the Lord, is do not fear what you will suffer. Be faithful unto death. What you might remember, what really stood out to me is he doesn't say, hey, don't worry, I'm, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna intervene and the, the persecution's gonna stop and I'm gonna make everything nice and rosy again for you. In their case, he warned them about even greater, they were suffering persecution. He's saying, even more is coming your direction. And the implication is, and I'm not gonna stop it. You're gonna go through it. You're gonna experience it. And the one thing I want you to know is, be faithful. Even if this persecution kills you in this world, hold to your faithfulness, and then you'll see your life really wasn't defined by what happened to you here in this world. Your life is defined by what it meant for me for all of eternity. All right, the third church, Pergamum. This was a, what I called a compromised church. There were some things that pleased the Lord in this church and some things that displeased him. What pleased him was they were holding fast to the name of the Lord and they weren't denying his name. They weren't denying the faith. So they're in the midst of a idolatrous society, an idolatrous city, an idolatrous culture, and they were holding true to the one true Lord and the one true gospel, no matter what. What was displeasing to the Lord, because that first thing is very pleasing to him, but what was displeasing is there was some false teaching that they had allowed to creep into the church and this was, he identified as the teaching of Balaam and, and the Nicolaitans. So if the Nicolaitans were teaching cultural compromise, the, the teaching of Balaam was even worse. Uh, you might remember from the story of Balaam in the Old Testament, he was a prophet of the Lord who himself was mixed in his relationship with the Lord. He had... He had the ability by the grace of God to discern the word of the Lord and to proclaim it as a true prophet, but he had a fatal character flaw. Do you remember what Balaam's fatal character flaw was? Money, 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 money. And someone came and offered him a king, a competing king with Israel, offered him a, a truckload of money to curse Israel rather than to bless them. And he knew better. He said, I can't do that. You know, the Lord is going to hold me accountable if I do that. And then the, the guy came back with an even greater offer. He said, okay, I can't curse them, but what I can do is teach you how to cause Israel to compromise. 
So I won't get myself in trouble that way. Now, of course, ultimately, I'm sure he did get himself in trouble with the Lord doing that. But now, how does that translate to the circumstances of the church in Pergamum and the circumstances of churches even today? Um, it was a teaching that said, you know, because what Balaam taught them is, send your best-looking young women to the camp of Israel and lure the young men into, into um, inappropriate relationships. And in doing that, introduce them to your gods. And they, then the Lord will be displeased with that and he'll bring a judgment upon, upon the nation of Israel. And so the idea here in terms of some holding to the teaching of Balaam is that there were some within the church that was saying it is, it is not problematic for Christians to compromise their moral standards as we interact with a culture that surrounds us that's morally corrupt. In order to reach them, we need to lower our standards to reach the society around us. So what was the Lord's exhortation to Pergamum? Repent. Single word. Repent. You know what it means. You understand it. We've rehearsed it many times. It's a change of mind, producing a change of heart, producing a change of perspective and attitude, leading ultimately to a change of behavior. Repent. The next church, Thyatira. Thyatira, I, I, I termed a tolerant church, but tolerant in the worst way, not the best way. Again, there's a mixture here. There's some things that please the Lord. He was pleased by their works, so they were active in serving the Lord. He was pleased by their love. Can you imagine? They loved each other, and they loved the Lord. And the Lord looked at that, and he saw that, and he was pleased that his family was loving one another, and they were all loving him. He was pleased by their faith. Their faith was strong. Their service their patient endurance in the midst of pressure from the surrounding society. All of that is great. Can you imagine if the Lord said those things about us? I'm pleased with tree of life for your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. They only had one problem, and their one problem was they tolerated a woman in leadership in the church who was leading the church into compromising influence with compromising influence to do the kind of things that the, the Balaam concept in Pergamum was doing the Galatian concept teaching the church to lower their standards morally and spiritually and so the Lord's exhortation was aimed not at the entire church but to those within the church that were not following this compromising teaching he basically said to them I'm going to take care of this element in the church. I will deal with it directly. I will judge this, this element that's leading the church in the wrong direction. But for those of you who have not yet fallen under this influence, this is my word to you, hold fast what you have until I come. And there the coming isn't the second coming of Christ, it's the coming to judge that influence that was leading the church astray. The next church, Sardis. This is the worst one. This is the worst of the seven. It's, I termed it a dead church. I did so because the Lord himself termed it a dead church. What pleased the Lord about the Sardis church? Nothing. Wow. And keep in mind, this was at this present moment identified as a lampstand of the Lord. He's 
in a relationship with it. He's, he's identifying it as belonging to him, but they are right on the edge of losing that connection with him because they're already spiritually, they're dead inside when true believers should be exactly the opposite, filled with the life of the Lord. So what does he say to this dead church? He exhorts them, wake up. Wake up before it's too late. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. There was some good stuff there. Hold on to the good stuff. Don't let it, don't let it all die. And remember what you have received. What they'd received was the gospel that changed their lives. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Two more churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Philadelphia, I termed a weak church. The reason they were weak was not because they were spiritually weak. They were actually spiritually strong. But they were weak in the sense that they, what the Lord described in the displeasure expression was that they had little but little power. And my conclusion is he's not talking about their ability to remain faithful and true to the Lord, but he's talking about their numbers. They were probably small in number and their lack of influence in the culture surrounding them. And so was there anything pleasing to him? Yes, their works and that they were keeping the Lord's word and they were not denying his name. You know, one of the most important things to the Lord is, are you, are you true to this book? You know, are you faithful to what's written and revealed in this book? He's more concerned about that than the size of the church, than the influence of the church. So what does he exhort the Philadelphians? Hold fast what you have. What did they have? They had good works as they served the Lord. They had faithfulness to the word of God and they had allegiance to his name, never ever denying it, no matter the pressure. All right, the last church, Laodicea, we just recently studied it. We did a, um, we, we spent more than one week studying the Laodicean church. Uh, the Lord himself described it as a rich church. And we're talking about financially, physically rich in this world. Remember it was, um, it was, it was in a city that was kind of like the marketplace of Asia Minor. And there were, there were businessmen that filled the city and there were businessmen that filled this church and so the church was financially well off. What displeased the Lord about them was he identified them as lukewarm. And we're not talking about, remember, just that they were kind of uh, lukewarm in their devotion to the Lord. He was using the imagery of water from the, from the circumstances of the city to describe that unlike two neighboring cities, one which was known for its hot water, the other which was known for its cold, refreshing mountain spring water, both of which, the, the hot water being useful for healing warm baths and the cold water for refreshment, unlike them, the water in Laodicea, therefore the church in Laodicea was lukewarm, useless, good for nothing. They were filled with their own stuff, their own concerns, their own priorities, their, what mattered most to them and they had lost their regard for the things that mattered most to the Lord. So the Lord describes them as wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So he exhorts them 
He says, you've been doing business with the surrounding society. That's been your concern. That's been your priority. I exhort you, do business with me instead. Buy from me gold. You know, the banking business in Laodicea being one of the great industries. Gold we identified as um, a, a biblical image of genuine faith. Refined in the fire. White garments. Buy from me white garments. The, the garment industry in Laodicea, famous for its black garments. The white garments had to do with, as later described in the book of Revelation, the righteous deeds of the saints. And then they had this famous medical school that produced this eye salve for all kinds of eye problems. The Lord said, buy from me. Don't buy from the medical school eye salve. Buy from me eye salve. The salve that I give you, the salve that I sell you, has the ability to open your spiritual eyes and cause you to see from my perspective. And then this final pair of exhortations, he says to them, be zealous, therefore, and repent. To be zealous, you remember the emphasis, and this was in our study just, I think, last week. It means to be really motivated. Not just, he doesn't just say to them, repent, as he said to a few of the other churches. He says, be, you need to be super motivated in your efforts to repent. Recognize how much you need to change and then be serious about that change. Where I want to end is a review of the promises. These are the promises the Lord gave to all of the churches. Different promises to each church, but I just, I, I just gathered them all together because ultimately these promises have nothing to do with the practical circumstances of the seven churches. It, these promises are given to the true believers in each one of these seven churches and only to the true believers. So if you truly know the Lord and belong to him, these promises belong to you. And again, these are not promises that the Lord will make things better in the immediate future of your life in this world. He may, and the Lord is gracious to do that at times for his people, to, to make things better in their practical, physical, natural circumstances. Sometimes the Lord will give you a better job. Sometimes the Lord will give you a better place to live. Sometimes the Lord will improve your health. And sometimes he doesn't, right? Have, have you experienced both things from the Lord? I've experienced both things. Those are his decisions and those are his concerns and, and he knows what's best for us. Sometimes it's best to have less than it is to have more because our hearts wake up to a greater extent when we have less. And then sometimes it's better to have more than it is to have less because our hearts are tested when we're given more and we find out more about who we really are. But these promises are about eternity. They're not about life in this world. These promises are given only to those who the Lord terms as overcomers. And what I've tried to consistently define overcomer as through all seven of these letters is those who remain faithful to the Lord no matter what. Can you hold your present faithfulness. If you are sitting here faithful to the Lord Jesus, faithful to the gospel, and faithful to the entire word of God, if you sit here faithful this morning, can you hold your faithfulness until your last breath in this world? Then you are an overcomer. And you have these promises waiting for you in eternity. The Lord says, 
Those who overcome will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. I am looking forward to that. Eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. You remember in the Garden of Eden, which is termed paradise, paradise on earth, in the Garden of Eden, the Lord forbade them, forbade them from eating of the tree of life. Here he invites us to it and he, he encourages us to eat of the tree of life in the paradise that we will find in his presence in heaven. Second, we will not be hurt by the second death. This, listen, the first death is hurtful. The first death is hurtful. But the first death, which is your death in this natural world, we'll all experience it unless the Lord comes before we anticipate and you know, we meet him as he returns to this world. Unless that happens in the course of our life in this world, every single one of us will taste the hurtful first death. But the hurt of the first death is nothing to be compared to the hurt of the second death. The second death, as it's described later in the book of Revelation, is eternal death. And we don't mean by that, the Bible doesn't mean by that, the Revelation doesn't mean by that, second death meaning second things just end and, and you just don't exist anymore. You will exist forever, whether you're in right relationship with the Lord or not, but the second death is a death that has ongoing, continual, eternal ramifications of punishment. Then he promises to overcomers, he'll give them hidden manna. This is like the, the manna hidden in the jar that was placed within the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. It's, it's the ability to eat of the bread of life that's found only in the one who sits upon the throne. And he'll give us a white stone and a new name written on that stone. This had to do in the culture of that day with being given you know, as the, as the winner of the, of the ancient games, the Olympic-type games, the winner was, as, among the prizes given to the winner was a white stone with their own name written on that stone so that they could go to any feast and festival in that city and show that stone, and it was a ticket to get in free for the rest of their life. And here the Lord is saying, you overcome, you win this race in this present world by remaining faithful to me to the very last step of that race and I will give you a white stone that will grant you admission to the greatest feast that's ever been experienced for all of eternity to come in his presence. To the overcomer, I'll grant authority over the nations. In other words, we're, and this, this is mi mysterious in terms of what this will look like in eternity to come. I don't know all the details. All I know is he promises we'll share his authority. And it'll be authority over the nations. And he'll give us the morning star. He is revealed in scripture as the morning star. He says, I'll give you myself fully and I'll give you the full experience of who I actually am in heaven. Those who overcome will be clothed in white garments, that's in the righteous deeds of the saints and the glory that is attached to those righteous deeds. And he promises that our name will never be blotted out of the book and that in the presence of God the Father, the Lord Jesus himself will speak 
our name and say, this one belongs to me now and forever. Those who overcome will be pillars in the temple of God, meaning in a permanent place, just like if you remove a pillar from a structure, that structure will collapse. Like we have these, these wooden pillars this structure depends on these pillars and the presence of these pillars. So you, 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 he spoke this to a group of people that had been ejected from the Jewish synagogues because of their allegiance to Christ. And he says, they may have ejected you from the temple on earth, but I'm gonna give you a permanent place in my temple in heaven. And I'm going to write my name on you. You will belong to me forever and ever. And then finally, the most, in my opinion, my humble opinion, the greatest promise ever given by the Lord himself to any human being ever in history. If you overcome, I will grant for you to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Can you imagine? I mean, there's sometimes Christians make up this stuff about our relationship with the Lord. Like I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna run into the throne room of heaven like a little child, I'm gonna jump up on his knee. You know, no, you're not gonna do that. Trust me. You will be awestruck when you enter the throne room of God. You're not gonna jump up on the Lord's knee. But what he will grant you, and I don't know exactly how this is gonna work out and what it's going to look like, but he will grant you to sit with him on his throne. There's no greater possibility of what you can experience in life than that. And then finally, again, as the Lord spoke to each one of these seven churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the Spirit's message to his church, to his people. Let's pray. Father, I wanna thank you for what I believe to be your redirection to shift to this study of the seven churches in Revelation chapter two and three, we want to be among those who hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I pray that this summary would serve your purpose to remind us about what matters most to you. Uh, help us to evaluate ourselves individually and then corporately as a church through the lens of your perspective and your revealed words and your priority concerns. And then Father, may we be counted among those who you call overcomers and may we be recipients of these awesome and wonderful promises that you made specifically to those who overcome. It's only by your grace that we could look forward to that, believe in that, trust in that, and, and one day experience the fullness of that. So we look to you for it in the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray, amen.